0: This is the Light & Life Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Heintzman. Toxic churches produce deadly disciples. That's the premise behind Denny Wayman's latest book, Toxic Discipleship, and Denny is my guest on today's episode. Pastors, leaders, and laity will all benefit from this conversation about how relational and spiritual toxicities affect the church as the seven deadly sins take root where the fruit of the Spirit should be produced. Allow this conversation to inform your own ministry. And now let's begin. Welcome to today's episode of the Light and Life podcast. I'm Brett Heintzman, and I'm just so glad to be joined today by author Denny Wayman, who has just recently written a book titled Toxic Discipleship, Toxic Churches Produce Deadly Disciples. Wow. Thanks for joining me, Denny. It's my honor. So, hey, can we just jump right in and start right at that jumping off point? I mean, this is a power-filled, powerful title. It kind of just reaches out and grabs you this idea of toxic discipleship and that toxic churches produce deadly disciples. There's, this is going to be a great conversation today. Help us to understand what you mean as you come at this book from the idea of a toxic church. What is a toxic church?
1: Well, one of the great gifts of uh, systems thinking and ecosystems is that any church that, or any group, actually, any family or organization or nation or politics and so on, has a way of being that is either helpful or destructive or a combination of. Most of the things that we live with are a combination. And so I would say that it'd be unlikely to have a completely toxic church. But to have a church that has built-in toxicity for a whole variety of different reasons would then, in its discipleship, and and uh, as I show in the book, all the use of all the gifts would have some uh, toxic elements to it that could produce then a toxic worship, a uh, toxic toxic counseling, uh, toxic teaching, uh, and uh, that that reality causes then. The church to uh, malform, if not uh, create deadly disciples, who in fact uh, destroy others rather than continue to, to build them, edify them, build them up. Uh, and so, you know, a, a toxic church. I I would hope that there aren't many that are completely that, but I would say that most churches have some toxic elements. And uh, so identifying that will be greatly helpful.
0: So we bring ourselves into the church and we come broken most often. I know as a young child, when I first started attending church, it was the summer after my seventh, uh, seventh grade year in school. And um, our family was not all put together really nice whatsoever. A lot of what I inherited from them, we'll hear often people say, well, you know, the parents did the best they could with what they had. And we, that was my story is my parents did the best they could with what they had. And so here I am in church and I come into the church and I bring some of these toxicities with me. So is that what you're talking about is we're just people and we bring who we are into the church setting?
1: Well, that's definitely part of it, uh, and you—you know—I don't know if you could evaluate mostly the part of it, but all of us, when we are rooted in toxic families, toxic community, toxic culture, and we come into the church, we want to put our roots now into the very presence of God, as I talk about in uh, discipleship ecosystems. That it's—it's it's in the presence of God that the fruit of the Spirit grow. But the problem is we bring our own roots into the church, and the roots have these um, patterns of being and doing and relating to others in such a way that they're toxic. And what, what we know in counseling, of course, is that you can change. It's called a geographic solution. You think that if you move from this family to this family or this church to this church, that this church will now be perfect. Well, the problem is we bring our roots with all of their toxicity into the new church, and then it doesn't feel like home until it smells like, and feels like the toxic environment that we mm-hmm. are. And that that's true when families come into a church. It's true when uh, pastors change churches. It's it's true of all humanity. That's that's the way we interact.
0: That can be really revealing for church leaders to understand when new people come into the church, if there's some suspect behavior or some brokenness. The idea is, you know, wherever we are, there we are. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what you're describing here. But I like how you say we bring the roots. Um, in those roots, you talk about in the book three specific behaviors. Let's dig into those. Would you name those for us and then kind of unpack Let's do them one at a time, how, how they play into toxicities in the church.
1: Sure. There, there, I would say, of course, there are sub-toxicities that have to do with specific deadly sins. But there are three that have to do with really the basic core of what the scriptures are teaching us, and of course what Jesus is teaching us. And the first is to worship God rather than to worship self and worshiping of self so that I'm the final arbitrator of what's right and wrong, what is is true and not true, and uh, moral and not moral, and so on. And it's it's my self-referent kind of theology and thinking. Then I have this place where I, in fact, am becoming uh, not just God of my own life, but then I expect others to treat me like God, and that enters into then pride and and all those kinds of creating of deadly sins. Uh, the second, of course, is this uh, statement by Paul that we're not supposed to have a selfish ambition. So the first is worship of self. The second is selfish ambition. Ambition, of course, for the cause of Christ is a, is a great thing. But selfish ambition, where it's the cause of Denny, and I want everyone to mm. uh give me fame, honor, praise, whatever it is. Sure. It's, it's connected to worship of self, but it's it's uh, independent enough that you you recognize it in all the deadly sins. These three, I think, are present in all the deadly sins. And uh, the third, of course, is willful ignorance. All of us begin life ignorant. We need to be taught by our families and our churches what is true and, and what is not true and what how we need to live and and the the whole sanctifying process is done within community under the inspiration of the holy spirit and yet if we're willfully ignorant we know that there's something we don't know but i you know i'm not going to listen to that you know obedience comes from that hooper listening hyper listening to god so that we know what god wants and then we do it and I've had people actually who wanted to become a pastor, but didn't want to uh, read a book, didn't want to go to seminary. Just simply wanted to, mm. uh, you know, actually be selfishly ambitious and have everybody look to them and thought saw, thought that's what pastors are. But the willful ignorance is a real problem. So the, uh, those three interact in such a way that uh, they they buttress one another, and then. Together, they are this uh, toxic cocktail that is just so destructive. And and I would parallel them, by the way. In my first book, I talked about uh, worship and prayer and study being the three primary spiritual practices which grow the fruit of the Spirit. And I would say that these three, worship of self, selfish ambition, and willful ignorance, are the 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 kind of the triad against our well-being and the well-being of our church mm-hmm. and our family and community so this isn't you know as they always say when you when yeah, you study systems theology this isn't rocket science it's easy to understand that if you change this gear in the system it's going to change all the other gears and everything is interactive you know the butterfly effect so what happens
0: in a church when though that triad that of worship of self selfish ambition and willful ignorance enter leadership in the church
1: yeah i in in each of the chapters i go into how do how does a deadly sin interact with the different gifts of the spirit and how we use them and d- the different uh, deadly sins interact with the different gifts of the Spirit, like leadership, teaching, counseling, and so on, administration, all of those gifts of the Spirit, the different deadly sins interact with them more powerfully than in others. And, of course, prideful worship of self in a leader would cause a leader to expect everyone in the congregation to um, honor them in such a way that you don't raise questions. They have a direct line to God. Uh, they don't need the laity in their in their board work because they know what God wants and uh, and when you have that kind of a leadership toxic leadership effect, then everything about the church becomes a selfish ambition rather than an ambition for God. Uh, we do it because the pastor wants us to do it or the pastor demands it, and you you see it first of course in a in a staff if it's a large enough church for a staff, you see the the kind of domination, which is another toxic thing, uh, that identified in the book as being something that, if you want to dominate, why would you want to dominate this will for power? Why do you have the will for power? If if this is Jesus's church, then why would we, as as uh, pastors, want to want to dominate anyone? We'd want to be a servant of all, as Jesus says. You know that that's what would produce the mature disciple. And uh, so answering your question kind of broadly in that way, every uh, toxic uh, nutrient that goes into creating the deadly sins will impact in a negative way the use of the gifts of the Spirit, which will then uh, multiply the deadly toxicity in the soil Mm. of the church, whether Mm -hmm. it's Bible study or or something else. I can give you many examples of that. Some of them I put in the book Um, over my years of both pastoral ministry, but also superintendency.
0: So you also go into the seven deadly sins. You've talked about that a little bit now, but the next parallel is in Discipleship Ecosystem, your first book, which came out in May of 2019, there was uh, an emphasis on the fruit of the spirit. So you talked about worship and prayer and study of God's word being the three foundational things, you know, as the, uh, antithesis to what you're talking about toxic discipleship and then you talked about the fruit of the spirit as we know love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control and now you contrast those in toxic discipleship to the seven deadly sins Um, how does that
1: play out in the book well one of the things that uh john of course in his uh one of his first epistle, I think, he says, you know, that there is sin that leads to death and there is sin that does not. And uh, down through this, the the generations, the centuries, actually two millennia now at the church, where we've tried to understand, well, what is it that leads to death? What are deadly sins? And how do those sins uh, manifest themselves, either in my own life as a Christian or in the life of the church or a community or a business, a politics, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, they came up uh, kind of more out of the Desert Fathers in the early centuries, and then it kind of got formalized as a lot of things did in the Middle Ages with seven. uh, They now have, you know, suggested there might be nine and, and other things, but I decided to stay with the classic seven deadly, just like I stayed with the 12 classic spiritual disciplines in the first book. These are things that are proven by the church over hundreds of years to be deadly. And, you know, the the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth. I, I have to admit that it wasn't until I truly researched the biblical support for how deadly those are, those are that I did not see them as they truly are, you know, Mm. Gluttony and sloth, but the, the last two, which you know are are kind of almost a joke. Oh, I'm gluttonous, or our our church uh, potlucks are gluttonous, you know, and so on. Like, and we just kind of make a joke of it. Oh, he's just being slothful, you know, and so on. Well, not when you actually look at what they mean by the deadly sins mm. mm-hmm. and uh, the destruction that that has, not just to your own body. And all of these, of course, have physical implications, but also to the the life beyond the church, the life within the church, the life within your family, all of those things are unbelievably deadly and uh, and people kind of laugh them off, kind of. and so I, I would hope that after reading this, we would all recognize the dangers and and you know, be able to mitigate them. that That's my emphasis within the book is is what do we as pastors, and as church leaders and as laity, what what do we do to protect ourselves?
0: Well you do an excellent job of unpacking each one of them in the book. Uh, by the way, if you want to get the book, you can go to freemethodistbooks.com. There's actually all of the books are on the main page when you first log in because it's our newest release. You can actually get the, the two books together as a bundle with the ebooks as well as the other books individually. But in the books, you actually unpack each one of these from the root of their Greek words and get into the definitions, which is excellent. So let's just take one. Let's just take pride. Um, And maybe if you could just talk a little bit about that, like what is it that is so deadly about pride?
1: Well, one of the things that I did with this, and, uh, you know, early on, I decided that I was going to take this this affirmation of Free Methodists about the Wesley Quadrilateral, that our source for truth is the Bible. And so we need to start with what does the Bible say about this? Church tradition has taught us a lot, so has the, the social sciences, so does our own personal experience. But when you start with the Bible, you need to go back and start with the words that they actually used to describe this. And so as I was reading through the Pauline epistles and I would come to these lists of sins, I took the actual Greek words, put them on a spreadsheet, and began to then say, well, I think that might have to do with this deadly sin and so on. But then when I started to write it, the book itself, it was like God had inspired from the very beginning, not just the authors of Scripture, of course, and how they wrote them in the order they did throughout the books as Paul did throughout the books. But as I began to apply them to the different deadly sins, I came up with two different patterns. The first pattern and the one that I do in the in the chapter on pride has to do with, well, there is full-blown pride, Hyperphanos it's called, and, it's, and it means to be hyper-visual. You want to be the manifestation of everything. And so... That is actually the end of a study of six words. But they are not within themselves pride, but you see how they are prideful. And I realized that what the Bible says is you don't just wake up one day and and you have a full case of spiritual pride. You have these smaller indications that grow over time. And if you become a part of that pattern, then that will grow into this Mm. top root of pride that will destroy you but at every level you can you can see as you look through there and look at the various words that you know uh, they are not something that uh uh, in and of itself the bible would have translated as pride some of them it's kind of like just uh, a disobedience uh well What is pride if it's not a disobedience to God, who is the one who Mm. forms us and and guides us? Mm. If it's a worship of self or selfish ambition, then I'm going to come back and say, well, I'm not going to be obedient to anything outside of myself. And I've hit that so many times in pastoring when I've talked with someone and they said, oh, you know, I think I have a good understanding of what will make my life good. And I'm not going to take anybody else's. Certainly not a book written so long ago. And so, you know, that kind of prideful attitude towards willful ignorance and the knowledge that God has given us as to how we can flourish is something that, that uh, is early on in pride, actually. And once you go there, then you start going on down and you, you come to full-blown worship of self and, and you want everybody else to. And of course, I have to deal with a little bit of the language of the English language, because pride does not uh, really translate it very well, because you can have good pride, as even St. Augustine said. Sure. And so I, I, I address those kinds of things. And I also, at the end of the chapter, then, I address how does this relate to you personally, and then how does it relate to your church? And so in, in both ways, there are, are deep discussion questions that uh, an individual can answer, a small group could answer, a class could answer together. Uh, it could It could be uh, a written or a community experience.
0: That's great. Thank you for that. This has been a great conversation. We're going to close shortly, but I've got one closing question for you here. And that is let's say that um, you know someone is self-aware enough to know they've they've heard about this principle of, you know where my roots are. Wherever I go, then there I am, and my roots go with me. And how can we take steps to avoid uh, determining that the next place we go needs to look like and smell like and act like the familiarity, albeit the devil? It's the devil we know. How do we how do we avoid that? What kind of steps can people take if they're self aware and go, look, I don't want this. I want to change my ways. Um, what are some ways that people can take it, it, turn that ship a few degrees and get onto a new course?
1: Well, I, I think there's two sides to it. First of all, you know, there's an awareness that pastors and leaders and disciples, you know, mentors need to be aware of that people bring it and there's all different kinds of things that they bring. And, you know, some of it they project, some of it they transfer, some of it they, they do different things. That, that's the pastoral side. That's, that's why, you know, uh, there's opportunity for us to, as pastors to read the book. But then there's the, the person side that mm-hmm. looks at it and says, wow, yeah, this, this is how my parents thought. This is how my former church or this is how the world thinks. Yeah, you know, and now I, I cannot bring that over into the church. Uh, there's a great pressure on the church today to look like the world. And it it looks like the world in toxic ways. And so it's very important for us uh, as as a church to recognize that it's it's this interaction of pastors that have the awareness and the training. And then, of course, you know, that great statement, uh, you know, we need to unbind Lazarus as he came back from the dead. Well, that we need to unbind bind all of us. We need to mm. all of us be uh, counseled. We need to have pastoral counselors. We need to have professional counselors. We need to have people. This, this interacts, by the way, people choosing uh, a poor, uh, uh, destructive, toxic spouse time after time after time because it smells like dad smelled or mom smelled. And so they, they keep that. This is a pattern that doesn't just happen in the church. So I would say both. I would say you know the church needs to be aware, pastors need to be aware, and then laity needs to be aware, and then together they work on it. You know, identifying okay, this is this is a symptom. You know, I might not have a full-grown, deadly sin of pride, but I do have a rebelliousness, a self-centered, a self-referent uh, life where I don't listen to anyone and so on, like that. So. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the good things would be then to get the set. It's about as inexpensive as it's ever going to be because the antithesis of that is discipleship ecosystem, where you talk about immersing ourselves in worship and prayer and study of the word, finding the fruit of the spirit coming alive in healthy community. And that is really the antithesis of it. And so it'd be great to have a a mirror in both sides of the story to hold one up against the other.
1: I wanted to also share with you why I wrote this book. Oh, it was please! Kind of an unusual experience. I had gotten a uh, message from uh, Ethan and Maria Goodnight. Uh, he's a, a PhD student at Harvard, and he teaches at Harvard Divinity. And they wanted me to meet by by Zoom with their uh, discipleship book. I mean, discipleship group. And we went over the book and answered all the questions, and then two therapists had raised the question of, well, you you talk about it would produce different fruit if the roots were in toxic soil, but I didn't go into it. And that, God just grabbed my imagination, my attention. I had to do a lot of study. The Discipleship Ecosystem book, I had actually developed over a period of years, teaching it in my own congregation. This one, I just immersed myself in the literature, both of, of theology, tradition, psychology, and uh, in so doing, uh, came, came out with this. And uh, so I just want to give a shout out to Ethan and, and his uh, oh, great. Bible study. They're a free Methodist group uh, in Boston that, uh, that are doing great work.
0: Well, I'm so glad they asked you because this will be a great benefit to many. So we highly recommend this book to both pastors and laity. Hope you'll pick it up. Again, it's at freemethodistbooks.com, and go there anytime for all of your resources. But until we can talk again, Denny, thank you for sharing this time to talk about toxic discipleship, and thank you for all your good work in sharing it with the greater church. Uh, It's
1: my honor. Love the church.
0: Thanks for joining me today for this conversation with Denny Wayman. I invite you to visit freemethodistbooks.com and order your Discipleship Ecosystem bundle today. You'll receive Discipleship Ecosystem as well as Toxic Discipleship and the PDF eBooks for both titles, all for $19.95. Visit freemethodistbooks.com for all of your resources. And until next time on the Light and Life podcast, I'm your host, Brett Heintzman, saying goodbye for now.